Welcome to the Amazon Legends podcast, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became powerful sellers, also experts specializing in helping sellers, and both former and current Amazon employees who will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here's your host, Nick Urison. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. My next guest today was a former big law lawyer, but decided to be an entrepreneur. And today he is the chief legal officer and the chief strategy officer at Branded. And Branded has a portfolio of CPG brands that are either built in-house or acquired. So I guess Branded in that sense is also an aggregator. And uh, so Aaron is going to tell us more. So when he's not busy with his work, he's passionate about his family and his three-year-old daughter, which is the best age. It, it just gets worse after that. So with that, yeah. everybody, meet my guest, uh, Aaron Singer. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Hey, Nick. Thanks for uh, having me. It's great to be here. You know, I learned that two, three years old, that's like the best age. And then after that, as they get older, it's not so pretty anymore, right? Yeah, and, and just before it's can can be pretty hard too. We have our our second kiddo on the way here in like anywhere two to three weeks, so we're in the uh, we're in the zone of any day. So I'm pretty excited wow. about that too. Oh my god, that and that's the perfect uh, you know number of years between the two. They'll be like friends. Knock on wood. <laughs> that's the that's the plan. <laughs> Yeah. So well, you are a planner, strategy, right? So so let's talk about strategy. So what is your strategy? Uh, because we're recording this in March 2023. And, you know, uh, just a few days ago, Silicon Valley went bust, bank, you know, uh, went down, uh, inflation is up and things are happening. So what is your strategy for success in, in this kind of uh, conditions? Yeah, and look at I at at branded. It's our strategy has not not changed. Fortunately, um, we were born out of the pandemic, but the team that's at branded is kind of a set of people who have a lot of years of experience in e-commerce, and so as a result, we didn't build a business around kind of the energy. Let's put it around aggregating brands and and uh, buying brands with good sales or even just product lines with good sales. But instead, we sought to build a consumer packaged goods product uh, company of the future, but relying on kind of extensive expertise across supply chain, regulatory, um, and marketing and other, other aspects that relate to that. So it's been very exciting to see as that plan has kind of come to fruition as, say, COVID talents have have slowed a bit that the platform that we built is is just designed a little bit more for what we're dealing with today not not any not nothing to be designed for the exact uh, environment that we live in today of course but at least as it pertains to thinking about a mix of successful products both online and offline and and then the way that products are supplied to customers and market them uh, it's 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 pretty unique and, and special in that regard, and we're seeing kind of the fruits of those labors now. Okay, so what I'm hearing is it's the selection of the products. It starts so, with that, right? Yeah, it's a selection of the brands, right? So you know, there's there's different ways to to look at products that are selling well, and where there's competitive advantage for those products on marketplaces. And you can look for fast movers, um, but that might, you know, ignore the decay curve of products. And or you could do what we hope to do, and, and some others are trying to do, which is to establish exceptional digitally native first brands, and then work on those brands and drive both organic growth and inorganic growth for our entire platform. And so we focus on operations first, and we focus on finding great great partners in the founders of other brands that exist out there to add to our team um, and to bring them on board to our platform so that we can help take brands that are have already successful beginnings and, and help them take them to the next level while not losing kind of that 
founders secret sauce of what makes them unique and their existing brand so special to begin with okay so what i'm hearing is not so much the product itself but you, you're looking to build a brand that has multiple products digital native that means that they are selling online and at the same time you focus on the founders so what makes a founder a good founder to you oh well so there's a there's a lot of things one they have to have kind of that commitment to their brand and what makes the brand special um they have to you know and it's not hard to find there are people out there well I mean, it is it's hard to find but there are people out there who have lived their brands who really truly understand a unique offering and they understand their customers and they've taken that understanding of what they're trying to deliver and they've built that into a brand message that is built around a customer's need and then they've used the marketplaces at their fingertips in order to get it out there and so we're looking and we look for people and brands that are built around that that can be scaled whether it's within the us or abroad in such a way that relies on their brand and allows for kind of the other aspect of the engine of organic growth for those brands, which is additional product development. I see. So you basically are looking for people who eat their own dog food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And believe it and, and believe in it and, and haven't built and haven't built a brand for a necessarily just a quick hit, but are looking to establish something real and a challenger to those other brands that are already in the spaces and to provide a kind of different user experience for the customer that may be, may be better tied to the needs or kind of the changing uh, experiences of customers today. Customers have lots of options. Um, and we think that the way that we build our brands with these co-founders and founders of, of, of the smaller brands allows us to use kind of our platform knowledge of bringing products to market and, and utilize the supply chain expertise to build efficiencies in with their help um, while they can focus on kind of thinking about what the brand means for the customer. So once you bring them on board, do, do those founders usually stay with branded? Absolutely. That, that is a, a hope and kind of a core driver into our acquisition strategy. And so it's not, you know, specifically always necessary, of course, right? There are sometimes you know, you can come across brands that have been around for 10 years and the person wants to retire. Of course, we're open to those those kinds of scenarios as well. Um, but our sweet spot is really bringing on branders on, excuse me, founders onto our platform, helping them become branders, as we call ourselves, and, um, and then working with them to continue the growth of their brand. Um, an example of that would be, you know, we have unique kind of regulatory expertise. We focus um, quite a bit on, you know, consumer, consumer good, beauty products, um, household cleansers, those sorts of things. We have a lot of, we have some supplements, brands, things like that. Those, those kinds of products, you know, for example, have um, more regulatory overlay than, than others, right? And so we have a team within Branded that has expertise in bringing those sorts of products to market. Um, in line with the, the regulatory firm. I focus on that, obviously, as, as the head of the legal team. Like, that's part of my, my job. So that's the example I, I come up with. Well, that obviously is an area where the typical founder may not love the hours they spend on that, right? But as far as thinking about a new supplement line, as to, to, to be a part of the brand they've already exist, they love that. They're great at that. They know their user. They know their customer. And they, they, they can think of, you know, a new product you know, very well. And then they can team up with my team, for example, to bring it to market really, really effectively. And also in a way that ensures that the products um, are meeting those requirements, but they don't have to deal with any of that. And so it's a really kind of unique and, and exciting way to provide those, those essential parts of the business that maybe have been kind of bogging down founders prior, prior to that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine once you become successful, then you attract a lot of attention, right? And then part of that attention is the compliance aspect of it. 
and, and that doesn't make any money for anybody. And usually the founder is always busy pursuing, usually pursuing new products and everything else. And this just bogs down. So in your case, what size a company should that be to be attractive to you? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think that, you know, for the most, it's it's a hard question to answer for a bunch of reasons. I think that we are looking for companies, the way that I would answer the question is say, we're looking for companies that, lar- that are large enough or have a brand story that's solid enough that, that it supports what we're trying to do, which is to build challenger brands. And so what the exact number is, it's hard to say. It will depend on the TAM of the market, of the, the, the niche that they're, they're in. But it's more about saying, hey, when we look at this brand, when we look at this founder story, when we look at the opportunity for organic growth in that brand, could this be a challenger brand if it's properly scaled? And those are the sorts of brands we more or less try to focus on. Are there exceptions? Of course, we're always, you know, we, we love meeting founders with other ideas and things like that. And we try to be flexible and open to other alternatives and also just changing conditions. But but when we think about the size of the brand, it's really about brands that will have staying power. We can see uh, a path to becoming and being a challenger brand. Whether they're there quite yet or not, it's it's not necessarily dispositive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, you're looking for, if I, because usually when I speak to uh, aggregators on the show and I ask, you know, what is it, what makes it interesting for you to look at? One of the things about investment community is nobody wants to say no to anybody because they're afraid they're going to say no to somebody and then and then they're mm-hmm. going to miss because the person, the person or the company turns out to be wildly successful. Uh, however, this is business and it has to make sense. So therefore they say, okay, we need we we look for typically hundred thousand dollars and up net mm-hmm. profit for the year. Uh, so is that a fair uh, validation of if you like the business, uh, even though they may have a good story, they also have established themselves as a business? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things we pride ourselves on is being disciplined around the measures that we look to in the different scenarios in order to ensure that we're bringing on brands and opportunities that will further our overall platform goals. So at the end of the day, we're, we're like I said at the beginning, we're building a consumer packaged goods product or product company of the future. And, and also, as I said at the beginning, what's been you know refreshing for us beginning, given our beginnings at the height of the, uh, you know, the energy around our space into now that we haven't had to change our overall strategy about thinking about basic business principles um, for a successful business that could be a standalone, right? And so, of course, whenever we look at acquiring assets or companies, we want to ensure that we're doing it in a calculated way that furthers that ultimate goal which is to you know be be profitable, maintain you know a healthy a healthy approach to doing business and and all of that stuff and you know this predates kind of the market realignment on that topic right all of us at branded we have a, like an amazing group of people that we put together we're very fortunate with our team and that many people have experience in in startups that are mainly e-commerce related and. So we have that experience of knowing that mere top line isn't isn't the North Star. And so and we had that experience prior again to the market realignment around that topic. So we've always been building against that. And so that, of course, translates all the way down into how we think about anything that we would add on. And we use discipline around that. And now it doesn't mean, you know, that it doesn't mean that just because a sub scale business has been unable to get to a certain point that it's, you know, uh, certainly not something we can consider. Because if we see immediate platform gains by bringing something onto our platform, whether it's supply chain or otherwise, you know, we that that's our business. That's what we do. Like, that's what we're good at. And so we always are interested in, in hearing and seeing things and, and trying to think through the strategy around that. And we think we we think our platform really does offer a lot of upside for brands. So I don't I don't know that I can say that there's some specific cutoff, because I 
I think that we do have a fair amount of confidence in what our team can do for brands that may be subscale um, at the point at the point of acquisition. Yeah. So you look for uh, areas of opportunity by leveraging your team's expertise. So if so, if they are if the the company needs some help in certain areas, uh, so that doesn't disqualify them right away if they don't need. Yeah, I, I want to ask you something, Aaron. You, I heard you mention a few times the, the term challenger brand. Tell us, what is a challenger brand to you? How do you define it? Yeah, I think, I think that as a feeling goes, um, challenger brands are brands that compete in spaces that are big, you know, big areas, household cleansers, vitamins, supplements. Um, personal care products that that are seeking to compete with large, big brands that kind of have a set way of doing things and that may not be able to turn on a dime to changing perceptions of what those products should offer, um, that may not be able to do new product development at the speed at which we're able to do it for, for the reasons that large, big companies may, might not be able to. And it's a, it's a, it's a, something that's special at being in a company of our size, having the resources we have, we can still invest in new product development, but we can also do it very quickly. And so we look that that's, I think, what a challenger brand would be is a brand that's operating in a space that has, you know, good opportunities where there's lots of customers, but, but maybe there's an opportunity to rethink how those, those products are designed or, or um, offered to the customer in order to change, you know, meet a changing need or, or um, interest of, of the consumer. So you're looking for disruptors. Yeah, disruptive disruptive brands. And and you you hit on a really interesting point. It's it's part of the reason why we take so seriously, you know, we have a set of values at the company and and one of them is, you know, do the right thing. And we still in being a challenger brand, we want to focus on doing things the right way and and as as the head of legal, I know many people can disagree about what the right way is, but but just having that discussion. And, and so we, in addition to wanting to challenge the way that things are done, we still want to do things the right way for our customer and provide good products. And so um, challenger brands make up that. They provide something that, you know, is, is good and done the right way and thought out and with the customer in mind that will make the customer happy um, and, and hopefully bring them back for more. And, and while also rethinking the way things are already done. So you can look at, at some of our brands like Puracy and, and, and see that and others uh, and see that. Is your focus primarily Amazon sellers or also outside Amazon if they're selling through their website? Yeah, so, so I think that as with most, as with most uh, kind of digitally native brand, uh, acquirers, or in the case of aggregators, um, yes, we, we start there, but we are open to others that might not know how to work in the Amazon, you know, space. We're, we're, we're excellent at launching brands and bringing products online on third-party marketplaces. We have tremendous team that has tremendous amount of experience either working at those places or selling on them. And so, you know, certainly we we look to that as a table stakes opportunity for a brand, whether it's on there yet or not. So if we could see an opportunity to assist the brand in using that as a tool for their sale, for sure, for sure, that would be interesting to us. But typically the, the, the brands and products that come our way are already on Amazon. And so I don't know that it's a condition that they be there, but it certainly is pretty common that they that they are. Yeah. When I, when I think of disruptors, that usually comes with the burden of consumer education, right? Because what you are basically saying is stop using what you've been using for this particular need or stop doing things the way you've been doing because that's what's been provided. Instead, do it this way. And here is my product or here is my service. That is usually consumer education, which is the most expensive and the most time-consuming aspect of it. Uh, so in the process, 
you run out of cash and, and mm-hmm. you, you are struggling. So um, how much does that get factored into your consideration when you see a disruptive brand? Yeah, so I, that's a good question. I think I think that goes into the discipline aspect of our decision making and would be a factor that we would consider in the overall decision about how far along are they and how disruptive is it? And what kind of awareness is out there about the product already? Um, and how effective have they been at converting customers based on the messaging and their labeling and all that and where we see all alternatives to improve it. The, you know, without getting too much into the details, because I do think I do think it's part of our, our secret sauce, you know, utilizing the different marketing channels, looking how looking at how other brands have been successful, sorry, the target potential target brands have been successful in those channels is something we certainly think about. And and having a healthy dose of kind of reality about how how much better could we really do it for this brand, or is it really just an uphill battle? And so it's not to say that I have I have an answer. Of course, it can it can be very very hard to launch a challenger brand, but you can you can have, come up with a hypothesis about your ability to improve its marketability based on how how it's done so far, and that's something that most aggregators I think. I think certainly are looking at when they're looking at challenger brands um, as compared to say a product that just sells really well because it's, you know, unique or, or an in product moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's, uh, it's in your, you know, when you and I first talked your definition of your target market, as far as what kind of brands and you use the challenger and then it got me thinking, you know, challenging usually, means challenging behavior and patterns and they are hard to break. Uh, so it, it, it it's not a deterrent for you, definitely. And uh, you, you look for it, clearly you have something that you've developed that assesses. So um, so let's say that you find, you've got someone or a brand that, that looks interesting to you. Uh, as far as validating the business itself, other than the top line and the nature of the brand and whether it's challenging uh, brand, challenge a brand or not, uh, what else are you looking at when you are acquiring a brand? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the space, right? We look at, as with a typical M&A process, we have a quick uh, diligence process that is is deep enough to get a sense of pretty much the, the business, right? So what, you know, cost of acquiring customers, standard kind of analysis for what it takes to bring customers in, repeat rates of customers for certain types of business, depending on what type of a product it is. Um, We look at the supply chain. We look at, you know, potentially any regulatory flags that may exist in that that space or otherwise, or we'll go as as deep as looking into issues that might be coming up the space uh, in the future. Um, and so we look across a broad set of, of topics to get an understanding of kind of the health of the business across those. And, and then we make you know, our decisions based on those and our, and our kind of hopes for what the, the brand could do in each of those. Yeah. So as far as the process, so is there a pattern where usually you reach out to a brand if you're going to acquire or do you pick from the people who come to you apply? Yeah. So that's, that's a good question. It's really not one or the other and there's others too, right? So there's, you know, there's a whole set of brokers that are out there too, who bring, who bring brands to us for consideration. And so I think, you know, I, I think most of us would say in this, in the space, that the, the lead gen for deals has just changed uh, over time and it will continue to change over time based on kind of the, as you let off the overall market situation, right? So, you know, if in two, in 2021, the market was jamming, right? It, it was different than say it is now in, in broader kind of, you know, um, with some more headwinds due to, due to other factors. And so, you know, there's a process by which everybody needs to recalibrate and, and that takes time. And that changes the nature in which lead gen takes place. We're fortunate in that we have, I think one of the 
for for our space and for the the areas that we um that we focus on we have like just an amazing m a uh, lead who who is uh, you know one of our senior leaders here who really knows the space and so he knows how to work through those different channels in order to kind of find those those really special unique brands but, it, but the lead gen comes from many different ways outreach to us outreach from us you know brokers and, and all of that and, and really the the amount of volume in any of those just changes over time based on you know kind of economic factors i think that's a hypothesis why it changes where it's coming from or not it's a, it's like, that's a psychology question so I remember uh, I attended a conference a long time ago, and the, in this conference, it was all about raising money, uh, not for acquisition, but raising money. And, and the, the speaker was basically saying, like, if you go to uh, uh, Stanford or Harvard or one of those Ivy League uh, colleges, then when you graduate, uh, Microsoft or Google or one of those guys you know, will give you a job without even thinking too much. And then, you know, you spend a few years and then you make friends with some of the some of the other people there. And then you decide, you, you come up with an idea and then you leave and uh, have a startup company. And then at that point, you go to a law firm and then they'll set up your corporation and then they'll get you funded. And because you went to one of those Ivy League colleges, and then you worked in Microsoft, and and uh, now you, you have an idea. So basically, the bottom line is, if you attend one of the Ivy League colleges, you'll get funded. Otherwise, forget it. So mm -hmm. that was his approach. Uh, so he was basically saying that stop sending your business plan, you know, stop that. Because you're not going to get funded. Uh, you, you need introduction or you need really a background. That's what I'm trying to get a feel for. It's a common seller who came up with a good idea. And then they, they are they fit your criteria. They can absolutely reach out to you and say, this is what I'm looking to do. And you are open for business. Absolutely. We welcome we welcome that. We, we don't have kind of pre-existing expectations of who is great at thinking about what customers want and thinking about brand development. They can come from any different way. And if you look at the founders that have joined us, they all have very varying backgrounds, different, you know, things that they love doing. It's a very kind of exciting and group of people that has different experience and different backgrounds. And, and as a result of that, I think, you know, we're able to also involve them in broader strategy thinking about other brands. And, you know, we, 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 build committees internally and have calls and conversations about things that are outside of just their brands in hopes that they can bring that knowledge and that background and experience. So certainly people who have, you know, established brand they think is, you know, a challenger brand has true staying power, maybe can be scaled globally, but they don't know how. Absolutely. They should be, you know, hitting us up through our website. Um, and, and we're happy to take a look at those things. Yeah. We love it. Okay. So say somebody reached out to you, you looked at it um, quickly to see if this is a good fit and you find it's a good fit and, and now you are interested. So uh, walk us through that process. How does that work? You know, with the term sheets and then all the way up to final deal and then and, and what the deal looks like. Walk us through so that the, the listeners can get a good idea. And, and also, uh, Aaron, tell us, how to be prepared for something like this rather than suddenly, you know, here for the first time, you know, what information that they're going to need and what will be the, the presentation. Yeah, sure. So I will give kind of a generic, a generic answer here, because obviously the exact way that we do our deals is specific to the, any particular deal we have, we do deals in many different flavors and different types. As, as we've been discussing the whole time, the, the fact that the nature in which we, we try to partner with founders is unique uh, to, to our space. So, so the way, let's, let, we'll, we'll jump off generically from at post lead gen. So the context has been made and we want to know more, right? So we'll have you know, kind of a, generally you'll have like an introductory call where the, the founder will have the opportunity to kind of share some high level information um, about their company. 
Usually at that point, if they're represented by a broker or not, they might ask for an NDA to share more detailed information. We likely, as most buyers, aren't you know, going to you know, be pumped up about doing NDAs until we all agree there's, there might be something there, right? But because it's a waste of our time. But once we know we want to get some more information about how the company works, that's, that's sensitive, you know, you get into an NDA. An NDA is just a deal where we agree not to share confidential information. After that, you generally would see kind of a high-level diligence list go over where, you know, the, the would-be acquirer asks for kind of some key information around how the business operates. Um, and it's usually going to be centered around kind of like those key business-related topics that help the potential acquirer do two things. One, think about, hey, does this fit kind of the way we operate? Do we think we uh, can do with this brand what we would hope to do with all of our other brands, i.e., does this match kind of the way we model our business? And the other one is like, hey, is there anything there that is super risky and that we need to know about and ask for? And, and those introductory kind of more high-level questions help both parties, frankly, start to get a sense of potential valuation. Both parties always come to these conversations with an idea of what the valuation could be. And, and in addition to those expectations, maybe some market views of what the valuation should be. And so these, these kind of introductory questions help the parties see where each other is so that you can narrow maybe that, that separation of expectations. Maybe that's the goal. Um, from there, you typically see term sheets being shared, which lay out kind of the, the way a deal would look. And that's the, the best opportunity for the parties to make sure they're kind of in line with one another about what might happen next. Um, and after, after the term sheet phase, uh, generally would see some more due diligence where the parties will start to look a little closer at some of the issues or topics or questions that came up from the initial level how long and how much due diligence happens is specific to a deal and specific to an acquirer and the willingness of the seller. Um, so that could be lots of different things and happen in lots of different ways. And, and then at that point, if it's feel, you know, it seems like it's moving in the right way, that's where you start to see, you know, the legal documents being shared um, and the discussions about the specifics of the deal really getting ironed out. A, a letter of intent, at, the, at that earlier stage is going to be, you know, a letter of intent. It's going to be a term sheet. It's going to be high up um, and really outline the, the broader parameters of the deal. Then kind of the details of it get hammered out in the specific, in the specific documents. The deals can be set up in different ways with respect to signing and, and actually closing. Um, there are different companies do that in different ways uh, in order to allow for different um, protections for the parties. And some sign and close the very same day. Some sign and then have a period uh, for, you know, for other issues to be sorted out and then close. Um, and and that's kind of how it goes. And depending on the nature of the deal, like in our case, the founders typically join us. In other in other scenarios, that might be it. Buy all the assets and and everybody shakes hands and goes their own their own separate ways. It, it really depends on kind of the nature of the deal. Mm -hmm. So uh, do you do you have an earn out period and you usually build that into your deals typically how does that yeah work? i mean so so our deals our deals and the deals of other aggregators range and vary kind of from from the interest in the brand the assessment of the risk associated with being able to achieve the goals of that brand and and of course the interest of the seller and what they're trying to accomplish and i think the better way for a a potential seller to think about those topics is that, you know, depending on the nature of the, of the, of the deal, it's all about the potential total upside of the sale, right? So are you, are you sharing some risk in order to increase the total amount of money that you may get or not? And what is it that's important to you? And, and it's, I think it's important for the, for people who are looking to sell their brands to think about that. Um, and understand that, right? The, the more risk you keep in the company, if you do that, the more the more you're you're you have the ability to get if things go well. Of course, you know there's the risk that the brand doesn't perform as well as you think it would have, or or otherwise. 
Um, and then in that case, then it then it might not. But you know, that's just a, a point about being of the minds between the buyer and the seller and their kind of expectations of the value of the company. And so we consider all different types of arrangements with sellers, the willingness to do the different, or different arrangements, of course, always comes back to our discipline about the underlying brand. Um, so I can't say, yes, we always do this, or we don't, or we never do that, because that's not the way we operate. We, we think of kind of interesting structures that meet kind of our hopes and dreams for a particular brand and the seller's hopes and dreams for the brand. And if we can find a way to develop something that works for everybody, that's, that's the goal. And we want everybody to do very, very well uh, with our audience. Let's also talk about the valuation. I, I don't mean formula for valuation, but what are some factors that impact the valuation more favorably? So what kind of having, let's say that you have uh, two brands in front of you that are both equally appealing to you. Yeah. and But as far as one is more valuable than the other, and typically... You know, I ask people, you know, what do you prefer in terms of how they drive business, their listings, if they have following, you know, externally through social media versus relying on, you know, a limited number of advertising, so to speak, resources, but they are doing it really well. And so not necessarily one is doing less than the other, it's just, the, the way they are generating their uh, business. Uh, so that's one factor. Another factor is their team. Uh, do they have uh, payroll or do they outsource and they have VAs and things like that? So can you share with us what impacts valuation more favorably than the others for you? I, I For us, I honestly think that's a, that for me, that's a hard question to answer. It's not because it's a punt. It's because it really does depend on the underlying space and what we're, what our kind of strategic goals would be for the particular brand. And so, obviously, um, you know, at at base, I again going back, we're we're building a broader platform that we want to have staying out and to build a healthy kind of strength-based business. And so obviously, when we look at brands, a key one is to think about the potential um, overall margin structure um, of that brand. But the fact that a brand may not have achieved scale and been able to prove out their margin structure yet doesn't mean that that's going to be dispositive per se, because we know that there's a period of time for growth where it's just not the way that things work. And, but if we think we can solve that scale, then then it, it won't be dispositive. So, so margin is certainly a topic and it always, it always would be, but it doesn't mean that there's some yes or no compared to anything else. And then outside of that, it really does depend on the space. You know, if it's a highly regulated area, we're gonna look at certain factors more closely than than say one that isn't a highly regulated area because at the end of the day, we're trying to build healthy brands and we're going to do things the right way. And so how much burden does that put on the platform for instance? Um, and so it's it's hard to say exactly um, what factors a seller should be thinking about as they're trying to you know, predict where valuation will come, but they should know their brands and they know their space well enough to know where kind of their, their area is focused and where the risks are and, and to try to think about those things. And, and, and then also to look for a partner that may be able to help them out with that uh, in order to make their brand, brand more successful and more profitable by being able to address those topics that they may not be able to. And I think that's, again, a unique, a unique approach of our company is that we look to, to build those functionalities out in order to make the brand more, more successful. I see. So you are actually looking for the founder to be knowledgeable about the areas where they need the support. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess I guess I don't know that we're looking for that. I what I what I mean to say is that if if the question was asked on behalf of would be seller founders, like, hey, what do I need to be thinking about? What factors will someone who's looking to acquire me? focus on as it pertains to valuation, 
my response is that you know the market structure of the space is obviously very important. Sure. Any 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 ad creator looking at that is going to look at the profitability of the space and the opportunity for a profitable business. Um, that's 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 you know an imperative. But then the other factors outside of that, um, you know, whether it's a regulatory aspect or co or competitive advantages or how crowded the space is, or is it a truly a brand or is it just kind of product listings or those sorts of factors that anybody might look at will be unique to the particular space and yeah, the importance yeah. of them will be unique to the space. And to say that anybody can just kind of take a standard rubric and just apply it to every brand equally. And, and these are the ones that matter most really does, a, I think, a disservice to these founders and what they've done in the spaces that they're operating in. And, and to come to a meeting with an aggregator saying, hey, these are the things that we think are important to brands like ours and our space would be a very fun conversation to have um, because we would have views on that too about their space and their and their brand. And that's where the kind of, I think the valuation discussion would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you want awareness about, I mean, at the end of the day, if somebody created a brand, they know what, they have a vision, they know where they want to go and they also know some of the challenges that they will have and so you can have i mean i asked this question mainly because it's the most important question what is a good margin for you all right yeah it, so i can't really i mean i can't really answer that plus i'm not the right guy right i mean you'd have to get our uh our cfo or one of them on the phone she's she's incredible um and she could she could talk about that forever i know i mean i know about stuff but i think that when we're, we're building, we're we're aiming to build a very very healthy platform, and the margin story of any company is it differs based on a number of factors and where in the life where in the life cycle the particular brand is, and all that. Of course, there are kind of you know market based targets that everybody's aware of and everybody should be aiming for and and hitting, and and we do a great job actually at that. And so, but but to tell it you know, a seller that if your margin is not around here now, we're not interested. I, I don't think that's the case. I think that, again, we're looking to partner with people like that and help them get there and help them address those things that without scale are really hard to do. And, and that's what we do. We, we've proven that out, um, you know, over the, over the last year that we could do that. So I don't think that there's a, you know, a North Star margin requirement per se on a target, um, but we do drive you know, for those things and, and everything that we do in order to get kind of the return that everybody hopes to get. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of your strengths is the supply chain aspect of it. So you can improve some of those margins probably. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Based, based on, well, I asked this question pretty much to anybody, what do you shoot for? And the answer I get is in order to be a viable business, to be able to, Forget about you know acquisition or anything like that. But in order to be able to earn enough out of every sale so that they can finance their inventory, they say that they want to be making 20% net mm -hmm. after all, all the expenses, including advertising. So uh, in a again, not for acquisition purposes, but just pure management standpoint, even if you have such a healthy margin, which, you know, 20% net is a healthy margin. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as you start putting some numbers to it, like, for example, let's take the the, the ideal $100,000 net profit, right? So call it 120000 That means you're making 10000 a month net, which represents 20%. Then you can you know, work backwards, even at a healthy margin like that. They need about six, seven months of earnings just to finance the inventory that they carry, right? So uh, to even talk even lesser margins, they it's it can become a pretty stressful at the very yeah. least to run a business like that. So it's a good idea to have these healthy margins. Um, let's talk about the team. So when you see an, uh, a brand that is, again, meets your criteria, um, what kind of a team is, is a good indicator for you? Yeah, so I think that's, that's a great question. I think that 
we look for founders who kind of emulate our own values, right? Who want to own the outcome, you know, who want to um, really kind of do the right thing and who are, you know, driving towards products that customers will love. And so we focus on those sorts of soft scale factors and commitment to their brands. And we actually enjoy talking to people who are hoping to continue on driving their brand forward uh, into the future and joining us. Um, and so, and, and we're certainly open when they, where they've built teams that are essential to those goals that kind of live that same you know, way with their brands to the, to the whole, to the whole, the whole deal. Um, you know, that, that, that's kind of the, the core of what we're looking for. And it's the same with people that we hire at Branded. Um, it's the same kind of idea is that we're, we're looking for people who have great experience and expertise in the spaces in which they've been operating, but also are kind of willing to go the next level, do the next thing, maybe work outside of their comfort zone a little bit and try different things and be scrappy. That's a really easy word for startup people to say. Um, scrappy for us means work really hard, get the great outcome, become knowledgeable and get a good answer, not sloppy, just to get it done, right? And, and really, really feel like they own kind of the outcome uh, is the sort of people that we both look for in, our, in the founders that we work with and then also um, in the people that, that work here and that we hire uh, to, to, to just work at Brandon. So what I'm hearing is really culture is important to you, the kind of company culture they build. Yeah, that's that's a, a, a very big part of our kind of corporate level goals is to we've we've established kind of our culture and our values and then to, you know, reward and acknowledge all the people that live them all the time. And, you know, that's a that's a that's a hard thing to do. That's something that leaders have to do. And when you're running a young but quick growing company, with all sorts of things to do, it could be easy for that to kind of fall by the wayside. But um, we have an amazing CEO that that lives done himself up uh, in Pierre and and our CEO Alexi as as well, and so we try to emulate those those goals and demonstrate them and 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 then certainly acknowledge people who who are doing. Uh, it's all easy corporate things to say, but it's 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 the little things, um, and and we focus on our, our on our company culture. And I think I hope uh, that it shows through when we meet with founders because oftentimes. Founders in the diligence process get the opportunity to meet different people from our company. And I, I hope that they see that and they feel it because we're the sorts who lean in on the calls and, and, and all that. And we're, we're excited about the culture we're building over here. Yeah. So I have a question for you now that post pandemic, this is remote work has become the norm. So, how do you maintain culture in a remote work environment? That's a great question. So as part of my job at Branded, I'm, I'm the, the, the leader of the HR team. We have an, an, an amazing HR team. We're also uh, distributed around the world with people over the world. And Branded was born out of the pandemic, meaning everybody was remote first to begin with. Now we've come back to, you know, um, uh, you know, part, you know a, a flexible arrangement where we're in the office and out of the office. Some people are fully remote depending on where they are. But for the most part, people come in certain days and, and, and not. But it requires kind of more touch points when people are working remotely, more communications, more culture building events like, you know, inter integrating culture development and acknowledgement and recognition into all hands or to newsletters or even small team meetings and doing that both, you know, regionally and globally. Um, in order to ensure that the different people are seeing those those cultures, culture points coming to life. And then again, the leaders at any level, anybody with direct reports, kind of, you know, um, demonstrating them in their own behavior um, and 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 goaling people around that, right? Making sure that people understand that there's that performance is not merely defined as, you know, ticking all the things you're supposed to do, but doing it a certain way. Um, and so that's that's something that you know again branded you know is just a little over a little over two years old, but we're we're way ahead in making sure that that's something that we focus on and repeat and um, do that. For example, you know in our all hands we have a part of our all hands meetings every every month that are focused on 
examples of people living our values. Um, and just to show people and remind people how, how important this is to all of us. When you have your meetings, you know, on remote meetings, do you have the camera on or off? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. People joke because I, I always look, we, I, we, I always look presentable, but I'm generally wearing sweatpants. But yeah, where the camera's on, I'm not ashamed of the sweatpants. They're comfortable. But um, yeah, the, the cameras are on on almost all of our meetings. I actually think it's a funny question. I mean, I, so I, I started working at a law firm uh, in 2007, long before video conference. And I appreciate a good just pick up the phone and call. I think that the, the video conference uh, thing uh, and the and the reliance on it has actually killed people just trying someone on the phone, which is kind of too bad. You know that that was a helpful, useful, very time efficient thing. Hey, I'm just gonna call real quick and get the answer real quick. And if they don't answer, they'll call me back. Now it's okay. I have to schedule this. Hey, are you available for? A, and it's like right, right, right. it was a very quick <laughs> question. Just just call them. Them and everything else, right? Right. So, so I think there's there's a little bit of that we've lost in that. On the other hand, for remote work or for remote work, I think that the video call is obviously essential. Like, you know, how I write something in a quick Slack to somebody can be misinterpreted. Um, how I email it to you could be misinterpreted. Even on a phone call, you might not see my face and understand I'm being light. You might interpret it as I'm heavy. You don't know. Video call, I do think, is actually important when you don't work near someone at least once a week to to get their vibe to understand who they are and to get that kind of you know um non-verbal cues and all that stuff and so the call helps for that as a general general level so i only hit a little bit about where why can't we just call each other but i do think that just being able to call someone is an important part for culture too it, it breaks down some barriers and and makes the things a little less formal it's true. Are you familiar with the 7% rule? What's that? It's also known as Mehrabian rule. This It was created by, uh, I believe it's some psychology guy. His name is Dr. Mehrabian, uh, or, he, or it's called the 7% rule. What he says is, in communications between people, 7% of the message is carried in words. That's right. Yeah. 38% is in the tone of the person's voice, which adds up to 45. And then the rest is 55% is body language. So if you're not seeing the person that you're talking to, you can just work backwards from that. So yeah. now, now I say to people this. So I actually, you know, culture is a big deal for me. In my company, I say, we do not have difficult conversations via text because difficult conversations require understanding what the person is saying 100%. And I don't want to hear 7% of what you're trying to tell me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and the call, phone, of course, phone adds the, the tone of the voice uh, but you know, somebody may have a, a monotonous tone, uh, but they may be smiling at the time. So exactly. you know, they won't know. So uh, you, you just articulated, you know, what I always advocate. You know, the seven percent rule. It's uh, it just uh, you can't do without it. Unfortunately, human beings are very bad at communications. <laughs> they don't. I don't know that we're bad at it. We just we do it in so many ways, oftentimes unknowingly that we're doing it. And therefore, we don't realize we're sending mixed signals or mixed messages or not enough information for a person to fully understand what we're saying. And and with I mean, with the advent of things like Slack, you know, you you really have to work at it. And, yeah. you know, just the amount of extra words that are needed to be written in order to make sure someone gets the whole message is a thing. And, and that requires. Um, time. So to, to go back to what you asked at the beginning about how to manage remote work, it's time. It just takes more time and commitment to ensuring you're, you're communicating with your team. I have, with my teams, I have two team meetings per week. Sometimes we end them very early because there's not enough to say, but just to foster what we would have had for sitting together every day. And I, I, you'd have to ask teams if it works. I think it, I think it works. I know we laugh a lot. Uh, which is a good thing, and uh, but you're right. I mean, it's it 
you you wouldn't feel that laughter if we were just slacking each other back and forth. Well, you know, c communication. So um, my evidence about human beings not really being good at communication is fifty over fifty percent of marriages fail, right? Yeah. <laughs> if, you, yeah. if you ask, if you ask, the number one reason for failure is especially women. Yeah. Lack of communication or failure, uh, you know, breakdown in communication. So uh, it's, you know, and also men, women, totally different, different way of communicating. So communication is key. So I don't want to have any text conversations or even phone conversations. And I'm one of those people that since there is video now easily available, I don't want to have phone calls, you know, plus the phones have gotten bigger and then you hold it up. And then even if you have the, the speaker or the AirPods, it's not the same. So yeah. it's much better to see. So Aaron, this was great. We, this was a very high level conversation, but uh, it's important to understand, first of all, your company, uh, which is an acquisition approach to how to build value. So I think people uh, appreciate the information you shared. So let's get to know you a little bit. So tell us, uh, where did you grow up? Take us back all to right. the beginning. Yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. Oh, my God. You must be tough. I mean, I think I'm tough, but not because of where I grew up. How's that? No, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs. Um, uh, actually, a very great place to, to grow up. Um, people from all over the world living there. Uh, back then, uh, it, you know, automotive business was still very much located uh, within 20 minutes of my house for all of the big three. Um, so there's a lot of different people doing different jobs, engineers from all over the world living there. Uh, cool, cool place to grow up. So what I want to know is what made you switch from being a, a big law lawyer to entrepreneur? Yeah, that's 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 an easy one, I think. So, you know, when you're a big law lawyer, your job is to provide kind of the best services you can provide when an issue has come up. That issue could be a major issue like buying a company, but you do the deal and then it kind of goes away. And maybe it comes back. Usually if it comes back, it's not so good <laughs> when it comes back. But but kidding aside, like you, you come up with these awesome solutions and you do this really hard work in a moment in time for, for a company or a set of companies and it goes away. And for me, at least, I wanted to be part of building something. I like the idea of coming up with a solution in a moment, knowing what potential issues might come up down the road, and then having them come back and addressing them then, trying to be thoughtful about what the future might bring based on the decisions we make at any one time. And so I wanted to be part of, of that. And also, um, you know, when you work in a big law firm, you work with lots of lawyers who are great. I'm not one of these people who makes lawyer jokes. I think lawyers are awesome um, and, and they're super helpful. Uh, but, you know, you work with a lot of lawyers all the time. And in my job, I get to work with lawyers. I get to work with non-lawyers. I get to work with pretty much everybody. And I love that. Uh, it's part of the creative process, at least for me, is finding ways to work with different people doing different things to get to a solution, an answer, a, a path forward, and 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 helping people kind of get the most out of their jobs and having them be the most productive that, that they could be. And that's just not kind of the, the legal profession in, in, it, in and of itself, but it is when you're working in a company and, and especially in, in a role like mine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I have my best friends have always been lawyers because Sweet. And, I, and, I, and I realized later when I kind of looked into why I like something uh, and I, I, I figured out why, because lawyers job is to think about the contingencies all the time. So it's a fairly complex mind. You can't have simplistic approach to things because the devil is in the details, right? So, and you have to be the one who will think about those. So my, my best friends, my, 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 one of my best friends who's my corporate lawyer, he says to me, Nick, our job is to find the smallest hole in an agreement and drive a truck through it. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so, so now 
the, imagine being on the other side of it where you are writing that 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 uh, agreement so uh, so it's always been fascinating uh, trials you know so, so i love all this uh, and it's a very uh, difficult thing but lawyers are not entrepreneurs they are they do do things that are entrepreneurial but they are usually not entrepreneurs so when i heard you you know mention turn entrepreneur but now I understand you like creating stuff. That's what drives you. So yeah, that, that's what drives me for sure. It's great. Thank you, Aaron. This was great. And I'm sure that people will appreciate, you know, everything you shared with us. And uh, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a great time. Oh, thank you. Almost forgot. Tell us how can people reach out to you and then give us your contact information. Yeah, absolutely. Um, easy. I'm on LinkedIn. It's just Aaron Singer, and you can find me there. If that's no good, just shoot me an email at Aaron at joinbranded.com. Aaron at joinbranded.com. Looking forward to hearing from anybody who, who wants to talk. Great. I'm sure you'll hear from people. Thank you. Great. Thank you. And this brings us to the end of another episode, and I'll see you on the next one. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure and share an episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week here on Amazon Legends.